The Mystery of Immortality Unveiled by Rex D. Edwards Rex D. Edwards is a former Vice President for Religious Studies at Griggs University. Introduction When a 73-year-old California psychologist died of lung cancer several years ago, the unusual manner of disposing of his body included packing it in dry ice, draining the blood, and replacing it with antifreeze solution. Then his body was shipped to Phoenix to be kept in cold storage inside a 13-foot thermos-shaped coffin. This strange process promotes the cause of cryonics, freezing the dead for future reanimation. This bizarre strategy expresses a universal wish for immortality. There is a common belief that man, by nature, possesses an indefinable, invisible, and immortal soul capable of surviving physical death. The traditional understanding and biblical meaning of immortality will be carefully examined in this sermon. 1. The Traditional Understanding of Immortality The belief in man's natural immortality goes back to antiquity. The words, quote, you will not certainly die, end quote, are the earliest utterance of this false doctrine. This idea has been echoed through the centuries, from the Egyptian writers to the present. They said, as the sun set in the western horizon and was gloriously reborn every new day, so man left this world, only to be reborn in eternal happiness in the great beyond. To the Egyptians then, death was looked upon as a continuation of this life in a land where all was joy and peace. The theory of immortality became popular through the speculations of the Greeks, which in later years infiltrated the Christian church. From 600 BC, the Orphic and Pythagorean schools taught that the human soul was immortal and deathless, that every soul exists in happiness or misery through endless ages. This philosophy was further elaborated by Plato and Aristotle. Their ideas were accepted in the first century by Philo Judaeus, who sought to harmonize Jewish religious thought with Greek philosophy. To Philo, the body was the source of all evil. It was the coffin that for a time imprisoned the soul. At death, the soul was free to return to the heavens and enjoy the blessings of the ethereal realms or to descend in misery to the nethermost parts of Hades. So, for them, death was not an end to punishment. The punishment was to be endured eternally. Tertullian, the father of Latin theology, taught the eternal punishment of the wicked. He claimed that the torments of those who are lost will be coexistent with the happiness of the saved. Then, down in Alexandria, Origen, a teacher in the Neoplatonic school, taught the pre-existence of transmigration of souls and the purifying fires of purgatory. And we see the influence of the false teaching that, quote-unquote, every soul is immortal in the writings of 5th century Augustine and Calvin's teaching in Reformation times by advocating that in creating man, God not only designed to animate a vessel of clay, but made it the inhabitation of an immortal spirit. 
It was while John Knox was in Geneva as a refugee that he met John Calvin and accepted his eschatological teachings and systematized these into Presbyterian doctrine. Yet even though the immortal soul theory seemed to be the prevailing view of the Christian era, many leading theologians throughout the centuries held to the biblical concept of immortality being conditional and a gift to be bestowed at the resurrection of the righteous. These voices include the learned monk Sophronius of Damascus, who became Patriarch of Jerusalem in the 7th century, John, the morning star of the Reformation, and William Tyndale, who in the 14th century denounced the doctrine of purgatory. Many Anabaptists were burnt at the stake but held to their view of non-immortality to the end. The poet John Milton and William Temple the Archbishop of Canterbury, and many others of that era join with John R. W. Scott, Oscar Cullman, and many contemporary theologians in the Bible teaching of the non-immortality of the soul. 2. The Bible Teaching on Immortality In 1702, William Coward declared to publish a treatise entitled Second Thoughts Concerning Human Soul. In his manuscript, he stated the belief in the soul being, quote, a spiritual immortal substance, united to a human body, to be a plain heathenish invention, and not consonant to the principles of philosophy, reason, or religion, but the ground only of many absurd and superstitious opinions, abominable to the Reformed Church, and derogatory in general to true Christianity, end quote. The book stirred up all English on the subject of immortality. When the second edition was published, the British government in 1704 ordered every book to be burnt by the common hangman. Belief in immortality of the soul was not a part of Hebrew teaching, nor even implied in the Old Testament, nor is it taught in the New Testament. The word, quote-unquote, immortality, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 and 54, refers not to the soul but to the body, which though mortal now will be given immortality at the resurrection. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17, quote-unquote, immortality is spoken of as an attribute of God alone. Contrary to Plato, who taught that the soul of man is immortal and imperishable, Christ asserts that the human soul can be destroyed. Further, the words quote-unquote soul and quote-unquote spirit so often in modern parlance join with the words quote-unquote immortal, quote-unquote deathless, and quote-unquote never dying come from two Hebrew words, nefesh and ruach, and the two corresponding words in the Greek Suke and Numa. These words are used in the aggregate in the Old and New Testaments 1,700 times, and yet not once are the terms quote-unquote immortal, quote-unquote deathless, or quote-unquote ever-dying applied to them or to any other terms that would convey the idea of an imperishable nature or continued existence in either soul or spirit. The biblical view of man is that he is a unitary being. 
When Paul sets forth pneuma, or quote-unquote spirit, in opposition to sarx, or quote-unquote flesh, he is speaking not of the opposition between two parts of man's being, but of the two directions in which man may travel. The spiritual man is facing toward God and living a life of faith in his salvation. The life lived in the flesh is that which is apart from God and is headed downward for destruction. The endless permanence of all human souls has no place in the Bible. The evidence of scriptural research leads us to the following conclusions. The word, quote-unquote, mortal, occurs six times in the Bible and in every instance is applied to man. The word, quote-unquote, immortal, occurs only once in the Bible and is applied to God. The word, quote-unquote, immortality, occurs many times in the Bible and is applied to God or the future state of man beyond the resurrection. Man can obtain immortality only through Christ. Conclusion In the gorgeous gardens of the Royal Sandringham House, there is a grave. A younger brother of King George VI slipped into the silence of death, his head pillowed in a dreamless sleep. This young prince was only fourteen and had spent much of his short life in pain. On his modest tombstone is engraved the epitaph, quote, In thy kingdom he shall have rest, end quote. His earthly father, with all the resources of the empire, availed nothing to cure or give him peace. By contrast, we have a saviour who has brought ultimate healing, for he has, quote, destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, end quote. The life that we lost in the beginning is recoverable as a gift from God, and that gift is available to all. What peace comes with the assurance that the ransomed will one day of Jesus' coming be removed, quote, from the power of the grave, end quote, and will awake to life and immortality and, quote, never see death, end quote. We have this hope. Amen. For bibliographical and biblical references on this article and for much more content for elders and church leaders, please visit eldersdigest.org.